Welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. This is Victor Kinzer, and unfortunately, Simon is not with us tonight. It's the weekend of midwinter, and he ran into some travel difficulties getting here, but we are going to move ahead with the episode. We are going to be talking about the Nunyahi, and I have with me James High, and I will let him introduce himself and tell you all a little bit about his background. Hi, so... Yeah, my name is James High. Should be easy to remember. As far as gaming goes, my involvement is that I've worked on the Mage, the Ascension 20th Edition line. I helped with the original book. I'm in Truth Beyond Paradox. I should be coming out soon as one of the authors for Gods, Monsters, and Familiar Strangers. And I'm working on, I think, at least two more books, but I think I'm on an NDA on them right now, so I'm not going to name which ones they are. But all for Mage. I also am like... I've been a storyteller forever in the world of darkness. The world of darkness is my jam. I'm all about it. I'm also very critical of it, so we can talk about that too. Lately, my big involvement in running stuff is that I've ran four LARPs in northwestern Washington, two mage LARPs and two werewolf LARPs. I haven't worked at all on Changeling, but I love Changeling, and it's one of my favorite of the world of darkness games. Like most World Darkness games, it's problematic, too, so we have fun fun stuff to say about it. Uh, I also write my own stuff. If, you, if you're interested in what I, I do that isn't involved with White Wolf, you can go check out uh, roadclandestine.com, where I talk about a lot of indigenous rights and activism, indigenous history, and my own writing. Okay, thank you. The best place to dive in is really, especially for listeners who aren't as familiar with some of the more extensive, less played parts of Changeling, what are the Nunyahi? The term Nunyahi is a very specific myth, and it gets used in a couple different ways in Changeling. But the primary way that it gets used is as a broad reference for indigenous American fae. The Nunyahi are presented as of the dreaming. They're absolutely fairies. Their Changeling relationship in terms of how they merged with humanity is presented as different. They didn't so much just find dreamers and sort of merge with their human souls. They made agreements with, I'll say, priests, spiritual people of the various tribes from the the areas they're from. They are broken down in the book as being from specific areas. That's the pathway that they made their agreements to go through their version of the Changeling Way to survive the shattering and the end of high magic. Since wait, so I'm going to interrupt briefly. Okay. Yeah. Since you, since you mentioned the changeling way, I actually want to point out that there's a part of their, their kind of like potential creation myth. Cause as in most white wolf stuff, they don't give you like a firm story for exactly how it happened, mm-hmm. which is, which is fair, especially considering this type of creature, I guess I'll say, I, I kind of feel bad using that word, but. This particular type of individual, but I thought it was interesting that their relationship with their understanding of the changeling way, as written in the book, was potentially like given to them by the Nordic and Germanic Fae. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so what was their understanding of this like for the you know tens and thousands of years before that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, so now I guess the next place would really be to dive into talking about their interesting place in the canon. That has always been kind of odd to me. The other thing that is a little bit strange about 
the whole pathway into merging with humanity is, you know, the European Fae went through the changeling way. They merged with humanity to survive the shattering. And the shattering was kind of the rise of reason and kind of around the Renaissance-ish when superstition started to be pressed aside. Well, the timeline for when that force would have really made its way all the way across America would be very different. And they wouldn't have really needed to go through that transformation to survive the winter, to survive banality, until Europeans arrived. And I don't think that's ever really dealt with. It's have not. you? Yeah. It's um, not. I, th- I think that would make a much better story, but I, I've never seen that written about it that way. Headcanon, and the way that I treat it at my table is always, that's what happened. And that also makes the, oh, well, we very carefully had these relationships with the spiritual members of our tribes, and that's how, you know, who we made these relationships with. It doesn't make a lot of sense. That would have been a slow, careful process. But without the cold of winter, why go through that process? It also, at least in my experience, with my Native friends and with the reading that I've been doing outside of White Wolf, just trying to find original writings on these myths, which is a challenge, I don't ever see that. I I always see these stories in a context that everyone from the culture engaged with them pretty equally. Yes, which, you know, I think makes it difficult to portray them as being the same things that the European Fae are. Because, you know, I'm going to actually, let me dial it back a minute here to like a, a primary changing theme which is like, what is banality? Where does it come from? And ultimately, my perception of it is um, it's the lack of belief, essentially. And, you know, I, I'm a mage writer, so I'm going to think about belief first. But um, there there are ways in which the world has, like, globalized and advanced that kind of drains the color out of the world. And as those things become more and more all-encompassing of the world, it's harder and harder to have, like, a trust that there is like magical things in the world. And I don't think that it makes the same sense to tell that story from an indigenous perspective, because while yes, indigenous people are also affected by all the same stuff. The rest of the world is globalization, um, you know, technology, the things that the book is written at where uh, banality comes from. There's still a much stronger traditional beliefs. There's more beliefs in stories being real, you know, old stories. Like, you know, you could tell a story about how Crow lost his, or how Raven lost his beak up in the Pacific Northwest. And a lot of the storytellers are going to be like, that's a real story. It's true. Whereas, you know, when you have settled people who are more ensconced in settler culture, talk about, I don't know, wherever they came from, uh, let's, let's think red caps or Scottish. Let's say like someone, who's Scottish, talks about, like, red calves, like, it's it's told as if it was were a fairy tale, not as if it were real. I have so many thoughts on that in so many <laughs> different directions. The thing I'm going to start with, because I think it's the most obvious, is I'm really <laughs> overjoyed that you called out just how much belief there still is around these stories, because in both yeah. the Changeling Player's Guide and in C20, there is a paragraph that talks about, oh, well, indigenous people have cast aside their beliefs 
and that's why <laughs> the Nunyahi don't have access to the higher hunting grounds every anymore. And every time I come across that passage, I cringe. You know, because there's, <laughs> there's a real story to be told, an important story to be told, about how in it, it is absolutely true that in some cases there are there are people there are indigenous people born, you know, to families who have rich cultures that do walk away from it. That's an important story to tell. However, the what I see is the for my own cultural background as well as many other indigenous nations across the country, the central story is is we hold on to our, our traditions, we hold on to our beliefs, we hold on to our stories that are sacred to us. All these things are sacred. And you treat them like they're sacred. You treat them like they are uh, like real parts of the way you're living your life. The thing that jumped out to me when I first started reading about some of the myths that were used for the various Nunyahi groups in Changeling, I came across a, a book on Cherokee myths, and it was very clearly written by white anthropologists. It was a most uh, of that stuff is. Yeah, and it they, they tried very, very hard to be respectful and objective. But Anthropologists you know, are bad at being objective. I'm just they're very bad it. at it. There was one little snippet in there that I thought was very interesting, and it was when talking about the Nunyahi specifically, like that specific group of myths, or well, that, that myth specifically. And they talked about if you ask indigenous people, do you believe this story, and you're white— They'll just sort of smile at you and not answer. And that's what they said their their experience was consistently. And I'm like, that that alone <laughs> speaks volumes about the place of that statement in Changeling about, oh, these cultures broadly have walked away from their beliefs yeah. and how out of place that is. The other thing that I really thought of when you were when you were talking about that with banality and what banality is and the lack of belief. Changeling 20th did a really interesting thing with banality. Banality in the previous editions was very much the what you describe. And it's still kind of that in Changeling 20th, but it's been changed so it's personal. And, you know, a Boggan might have a very different relationship with banality than a Knocker. And so it's partially makes sense. disbelief, but it's also... And Boggan and Knocker are always used as, like, the example because it's the easiest to see. It shows up in more nuance with the different groups. But that, you know, someone based on their background and their relationship with the story that their fae self represents might react, different things might trigger them into a banal moment. And I had a conversation with someone online about the fact that it's kind of like the old echoes from the Dark Ages fae, where if a human saw you and didn't believe you could exist you immediately, you know, had to roll echoes and it's mm -hmm. a slightly different system. But with changelings, you have this human half. And so there's the active disbelief from outside, but there are also those moments that make you doubt your own nature. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of the framing in Changeling 20th. And I think th that sort of system and approach to banality gets, it becomes very complicated in a colonial context. <laughs> Yeah, I I, I I haven't read that section. I'll be honest, but like that's the when you were describing it, that was the first thing I thought about. So if we're shifting towards that kind of banality, I could see that 
I don't know about the indigenous dreamers being affected by this. I don't think they should be, really. But as far as being part of the Nanyehi nation, one thing I've always kind of like noticed in in the Changeling book is the way when you first open it up and you have the art insert of the map of America with all the different kingdoms spread across it is it's it's a colonial map. It's a Changeling colonial map, right? It's like here where's here's where these kingdoms have been established in the land that belonged to the originally the Nanyahi nations. And uh so if you're looking at how even you know these European Fae are trying to fight off the effects of banality by you know establishing their their courts and their kingdoms because like that is is part of their like safety and power network but they're doing it at the cost of your own maybe in some ways if you think about it the actions of the european fae are inspiring banality in the nyanehi nations simon and i have talked about that dynamic a lot you know there's the concept of the dantain the Dantain, as they were originally written up, were kind of banal changelings, full stop. Mm-hmm. Their write-up was really messy and really yeah. inconsistent. Uh, it was a, and, and it was a first edition write-up, and they never really got more attention, so that's not totally shocking. That's some of just a first edition concept that never got revision. Mm-hmm. So they completely changed them in C20. They're not banal changelings anymore. They're something else that makes sense and has a place, but it, it's not that banal changeling. And... Uh, there was a quote from Ian Lemke, the old line dev, and this was around the time C20 first came out. Someone put a post up in the Changeling the Dreaming, Changeling the Lost group on Facebook, and they asked this really random question. I never found out why they asked it. They said, could there be a Nunyehi autumn person? And Ian jumped in and said, absolutely. And so the Dantain are gone, but this idea of an autumn person who's also a Changeling in the presence of that shifting banality that's defined differently based on who you are, your background, your story, I think opens up. I mean, I think that that story always would have worked in Changeling, but I think now it much more explicitly aligns with the structures they've put in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ultimately, a lot of this, you know, I, I realized there was something I meant to say when I was saying who I was. I, I, want, I wanted to start off with. And I want to say it now because it popped into my head again. I, I want to emphasize that although I am an indigenous person with connections to two different tribes, I'm only one person and I have one perspective that not even like everyone in my family is going to share, let alone, let alone my tribe, let alone indigenous people across America, let alone indigenous people across the world. So some of the stuff that I'm talking about and thinking about here is, is coming from me and my experience, but it's not necessarily like the indigenous experience. And I really don't want anyone to feel that that is how I'm coming across because, you know, from the outlook on how to treat some of this stuff from person to person and from tribe to tribe is so different. Before we got recording here, we were talking briefly about the Wendigo from the werewolf line and how you had encountered someone who who shares uh, a tribe with me who was raised to never speak that word. And I don't necessarily feel the same way, but I want to note that difference because I might say some stuff that, you know, might raise some hackles. And I, I do my best to be respectful, but I just want to acknowledge that I don't speak for everybody. And so some of this stuff, I'm not sure if I'm the right person to, like, comment on that. And, like, the idea that you're talking about, about this autumn person... Nunyehi, 
I could I could see a storyline with that, but I also think that if you're looking at what Changeling is about, that also could potentially be a harmful storyline for some people. Yeah, I thank you. I I appreciate that framing. This is something that I don't know that we've talked about a lot on the podcast, but I spend a lot of time thinking about that line of what's a harmful storyline, especially in a a context of a line of horror games. And that could be a whole hour-long episode unto itself. But my approach has generally been, and this isn't specific to the Nunyahi or even specific to Changeling, is to kind of tailor the stories that I'm working with that are dealing with, I'll say, societal horror as opposed to other forms of horror to the group that I'm telling and make sure that I'm not going to pull out anything that isn't going to be fun horror for them. You know, and there are a number of ways to do that because I know people who like diving into even aspects of horror that have happened to them in their own lives because it's cathartic for them and other people where that would be incredibly re-traumatizing. So, and that's, of course, if you have a private table, that becomes fraught in a whole different way if you're writing or running a public LARP or in one of those settings. Uh, An example, actually, I I get where you're coming from. I, I think I align with you as well. An example of that is I'm currently running a Werewolf the Apocalypse LARP that's out of the new By Night Studios book. And I noticed that the book like walked away from a certain narrative that existed in previous werewolf editions, which is the way that a lot of the villains in that setting incorporate sexual violence into the way they deal with the protagonists. And I was like, you know what? In a LARP setting especially, that's beautiful. Let's like just not have this be a theme in the game and, and never approach this theme because there's so many people and that's so harmful. And sure, it is true that there are people who who find, you know, catharsis in addressing some of this stuff. And if you can handle that at your tabletop game or like a one-on-one or a two-on-one game, like I've done those before too, you can do some good things with that. But in a LARP, just the the fact that they walked away from that theme, I was like, this is a perfect idea, and I'm uh, and I'm supporting it. I've played a little bit of the new werewolf system, and I feel very similarly about that change that they made and that general approach with big public games. Um, yeah. Because, Oh yeah. Just, the new like golden rules of LARP in there. They're, they're excellent for how to yeah. treat each other and how to treat yourself. They're very good. Yeah. They, they really are. The day Sam had met blue, she was dancing. Naked, in the children's fountain, in the park. Blue gyred around a concrete totem pole, twin fish with tails high and mouths pointed toward the earth, sharing a single eye. Sam watched her, bundled up in 7,000 coats and scarves and hats, envious and awed by her naked beauty. In the distance, someone shouted, and lights flashed once. A threatening burst of red and blue lit up Salmon's blocky divine eye. Water sprayed down from his tail fins. Blue's feet spun her heavenward. She tiptoed on water droplets and pirouetted around the stars. Sam ran to her, yelling a warning and reaching for her feet. 
Blue screamed and laughed and fell, throwing her arms around Sam. In that instant, Sam gave Blue his heart, alongside one of his coats from amongst his legions. Sam stole her into the trails behind the park. Blue, laughing like a madwoman. Sam, laughing infected. To get back to some of the moving pieces of, of the Nunyahi, one other thing that comes up with the Nunyahi is, and this has had a couple different versions, changelings generally feed off of dreams. They feed off humans. There's a vampiric dynamic there. Unlike vampires, if they're very disciplined and careful about how they feed, they can do it in a way that actually enriches the dreamers they have relationships with. There's story implication that it's a fairly modern development, and for most of Fae history, they were parasites, but there's still that potential and dynamic there and connection with the with humanity and the cultures they're part of. The Nunyahi gather their glamour, or as they call it, medicine, which is not a term that is applicable to all of the cultures no, that they encompass. No, it's a very plain term. <laughs> yeah, but it's the game term. They gather it from the land. And the way that's framed in the game is that they had to innovate and learn how to find this potential out of reality when they lost the ability to connect with the dreaming and their dreamers. The implication of why that happened is somewhere between native cultures don't believe the old myths anymore and colonial genocide, but it's never really focused on. It, or I won't say not focused on, it's never really explained exactly what the reason in canon is. I'm curious about some of your thoughts on those dynamics. So for clarification, the original Nanyahi Nations right up in the Changeling Player's Guide, right? Is that, I think, where it appeared? Yes, the um, Changeling Player's Guide. Was written by white authors. The new version in Changeling 20 was written by a white author. And I don't know of, and we talked about this earlier, and you're not sure either if there was ever any indigenous authors that would reach out to to do these projects. So because they're coming from white authors, and you know, truthfully, if you look at outside of gaming, just any kind of writing about indigenous culture, indigenous people, like recently there's there's shifts, but historically, almost all of it is coming from white authors. Uh, you mentioned the anthropologists earlier, and they're all white. So... There is this white narrative about indigeneity that is a bit of a trope, which is the idea that we have a magical relationship with the land and that we can talk to the animals like in Pocahontas or that like the movie Avatar was very much in a, a parallel for the white idea of what indigeneity is. If the land gets sick, you die. I mean, th there's truths behind some of this stuff that should be addressed, but it's like this like magical Indian that you know, can talk to animals and heal the land and purify water by stepping in it and stuff like that. I think that's where that's coming from. I think that's why that was written into the narrative, that, that their connection was the land, not the people. But what's really being missed there, besides just like writing into that trope, is I guess just settler society often wants to describe indigeneity as like blood percentages or ancestry and stuff like that. But I, I really feel more importantly than that, your indigeneity has everything to do with your community. It has everything to do with your family. It has everything to do with your culture, which is something that you get from the people around you. We identify by nation, 
you know, I'm James and I write my own stuff and that, and that, you know, in a, in a way belongs to me, but also like everything I do and everything that I am and talk about belongs to, you know, Kora Indians, it, it, you know, it belongs to Chiricahuas because that's, those are my ancestors and that's where I come from. And so the idea in this game that they have like a, a broken connection with their people is so anti-thematic to what I think it is to be indigenous that it just doesn't really make any sense to me. Yeah, and I I have certainly heard that from other indigenous gamers that I have talked to about this. I have to admit there are only a couple, mostly because I have had a very difficult time finding indigenous people that play Changeling. And it's and I'm you not know, I'm not sure why that is. It's something if it's gaming more broadly, but I've I've seen indigenous gamers talk about other games maybe it's just the changeling is smaller so you're already working with a smaller community size i can give you my thoughts on that because i was actually thinking about this in changeling the original nyanyehe nation write-up was in an extra splat book that was not in the main book right even in changeling 20 the first thing i noticed when you were sending me the info to read because i hadn't read this before was that it was in an appendix and Meanwhile, if you look at, for example, Werewolf, there's lots of problematic stuff we can talk about about Dijay and Werewolf, and, and I'm not saying that it's perfect in any way whatsoever. However, uh, you have two primary main part of the story groups, the Wendigo and the Uctena, who are right there in the middle of every single book. They've been there since the beginning. Every storyline that has anything to do with the Americas involves at least one of those two tribes. Tribes of werewolves, I should say, since we're talking about tribal nations too. You know, so that's been historic from the start. And then even though this doesn't necessarily address indigeneity, since I worked on Mage 20, one of the things that I thought was done very well in the way that that was drafted was instead of, you know, having like an extra book to talk about the technocratic conventions or an extra book to talk about all of the disparate paths and stuff like that, everyone got included in the main section of the playable groups in the beginning of the book when you're in character creation by having the Nanehi nation's characters in a different splat book that not everyone's even going to own originally. And then in an appendix, like, Oh, you can also do this, I guess they don't feel as valuable or important as like playing a Wendigo or Nuktena and werewolf feels, you know what I'm saying? I do. That is something that stood out to me. I did a text interview with the line developer for C20 before C20 came out. It's on Keep on the Heathlands. And he mentioned at that point, I had not seen the book yet because this was before, this was kind of to raise hype about, oh, hey, this PDF's about to drop. And he mentioned, because we asked a lot about the Nunyahi, the Menahune, and the Hisian, because that blog's focus is inclusivity in gaming. And he commented, well, these are in an appendix. There's enough there for you to play them. Those were his words. And it was a text interview. Nothing publicly has ever been said about this since then. My heart fell. (laughs) I was not thrilled to see that framing. When I finally got my hands on C20, I discovered it was a very accurate framing. I mean, it is a step up from being in a different splat entirely. Like, that's there is that. But, you know, it it worked in Mage 20, right? It worked. They, They put them all in the same section. So well, I don't see why the other books couldn't have done that. Yeah, I think 
Well, I I have a number of, of theories about why that is the case, but it would be a lot of speculation. The, the other thing that stands out to me about what you said comparing to Werewolf is the Wendigo and the Uctena being central to American stories. Yeah. When you go through the other books and you read the NPC Nonyahi that show up because they're books where they give you named characters to work with, they are almost always framed around their opinion of colonialism. Uh-huh. And how they feel about white people. Yep. And that is how they're defined. And that always kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Not that those opinions shouldn't show up at some point, but it shouldn't be the starting point. It shouldn't be their story. And that always bothered me a little bit. There isn't really a central story. When you, when you read their write-up, it's, well, what role did you play in the Concordance War? What's your relationship with the commoners? You feel better about the she because they weren't here during the heavy colonialism, but then they came. And that's always the story. So I, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of potential there for a story, but it hasn't necessarily been told. So I was thinking about that as well when I was reading theirs in, in Changing 20. There's like the history section for them. And... It, I don't remember the exact way it was worded, but the first paragraph of their history, the very first sentence in the first paragraph is, the history of the Yunehi nations are fraught with, like, you know, tragedy and bloodshed due to the colonization of the European Fae. It's the first sentence, and I'm like, you're going to start the history of these groups by talking about their relationship with the settler Fae? It then, in that same paragraph, it then briefly says, oh yeah, before the settler phase showed up, you know, they all got along, or something like that. Which is also kind of garbage. It's the same white narrative about how indigenous history is like taught in public schools today. You know, you don't, you don't really get an education about the th tens of thousands of years that passed by. Like, we're talking about like all the way back into the Ice Age that passed by before a single white person set foot on Turtle Island. Just like, you know, if when you study history in school, like that whole section was one paragraph and that one paragraph started with, yeah, but like, let's talk about their relationship with the European Fae. Yeah. And the other thing that stood out to me when I started doing research, not so much for this episode, actually, but for an upcoming history episode that we're working on, and we wanted to include a Nunyahi history that was not <laughs> just about the war for Concordia is so the first battle for the war for Concordia, which for individuals who don't know, because we might not have dropped the history section yet, that's the war when the she came back between the commoners and the nobles to decide basically what their society was going to look like. And if they were going to bow to feudal rule again, it's kind of the, the cornerstone of, the mainline changing yeah. canon. The first battle happened right after the moon landing. Yeah. In San Francisco. That's the beginning of that war. That was the explosion of that dream. It happened in the middle of the occupation of Alcatraz by yeah. a broad array of, of Native Americans from several different backgrounds which was tied into yeah. a bunch for, of other stuff. For for modern listeners, um, to help give context for how big, like if you if you weren't around then, and I'm sure you have some listeners that were, but we've got plenty of young gamers too, right? 
the the Al- Alcatraz occupation was a, a a huge deal, like capital H, capital D, in the same sense that Standing Rock was a huge deal. Yeah, I mean, it was it was enormous, and one of the things about the Nunyahi about them not being able to access their dreamers or the dreaming, they can't go into the dreaming at all. Now, prior to the resurgence, neither could the European Fae. It was just a broad, we're in a low point of magic. But then the resurgence mm-hmm. happened in the European Fae. Sure, you can go back to the dreaming, and they frame the Nunyahi as being cut off. Again, very colonialist, genocidal implications there. That this huge event was happening at the same place that the war for Concordia started, I would really love to see a story that just centers on that. And it isn't about European changelings at all and what actually came from that. And, you know, they've done this with Vampire a fair bit where they tell a story and they decide their problems with that story, either capital P problems or just, oh, it's kind of boring. We want to flesh it out more, but it would involve sort of retconning some things where they keep the old narrative, but they keep it as, so that's what people think. But I would love to see a story of, well, that's what European fae think, but... (laughs) Yeah, like a subversive alternate opinion story. Yeah, I mean, not just alternate opinion, but, you know, oh yeah, no, the higher hunting ground is accessible in some places. I would love one of those places to be Alcatraz. And the European yeah. pages don't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it would it would fit into the into the narrative for like when the she showed up and started battling the commoners and they're fighting over like how the future was going to look since the commoners have been in charge for so long that the that they didn't even notice. They're like <laughs> they're so abs- uh, self important and caring only about themselves. They don't even notice what's going on literally next door. That that yeah. would make sense. It Well, and it also plays into something Simon and I have talked about amongst ourselves. It hasn't really made it onto the show, but the idea that the dreaming you interact with is the dreaming of your dream. It's not like the Umbra. It's not like you go through the Umbra and what's on the other side is the spiritual version of where you're at. I mean, there's there's a lot written on paradigm and what you project and that it does the Umbra does change dynamically, but mm-hmm. it's not like a totally, completely different place. Correct. necessarily when two different people go in but the dreaming could be it kind of plays into a lot of privilege stories it serves as an interesting model for oh okay so all of you people who are part of the main narrative you think this is the story and when you go into the dreaming that's the story you see and so you think these other things don't exist but they really do and they're still right next to you you're just not looking at them I've been thinking a lot about that in my current Changeling game and how to portray that. You know, I think that's a a really good idea. I, that's something I would love to see done more in Changeling as as we're as we're trying to address this like new updated version of Changeling. I don't think you're going to have an effective narrative in that sense unless the developers of Changeling are willing to at least consult with, but I think straight up hire some indigenous authors to work on Changeling. So, like I said, as far as I'm aware, I don't think that has yet occurred. I'm not aware of it having occurred based on 
the background digging that I have done, I there was a lot of call during the Kickstarter of Changeling for a Galane book, and Galane is the term for changelings that aren't Kithane, that aren't part of the main Arcadian society. Some people wouldn't even say Arcadian society, but it's the term I sort of lean on. I always feel weird about Galane because it's it's kind of an in-game term for the others, and that but I, there's not another game term to reference it. But I would really love for there to be a whole book that's centered entirely on non-Cathane stories and did not use white authors. I think that that would open the game up in a lot of ways. Yeah, it takes some effort. Like, I don't know of a single-line developer at Onyx Path right now that is non-white. I might be wrong about that, but I can't think of anyone. But it takes some effort from those people, since they're the ones holding the the decision-making power of who's writing for their lines, to reach out and find other authors who aren't from their normal gaming pool, I guess, even. Like, uh, there's indigenous and, and non-white authors in the gaming pool, but, like, it's so flooded with whiteness. And they've they've got to reach out. Uh, you know, again, I'm, I work with Mage, so I know more about what's going on there, and I know how hard Seder reached out to try and find different writers of color from different different ethnic backgrounds. And I think that that has had a big impact on how Mage 20 has been rolling out. But I don't know what other authors are doing. I, I don't I don't know, or, or line developers, I mean, are doing. I don't know. I'm not involved with any of those. I've never had any of them reach out to me. I'm not necessarily they know me. I'm, like, I'm not famous or anything, but like I don't know anything about any other attempts to do that other than what's going on in Mage 20. And even then, I know like sometimes it's been you know it it hasn't been the easiest thing, but it, it it can be done. It's it is happening. Yeah, I I think that that's something that comes up in a lot of industries is that whole idea that oh it's too difficult, it's too hard to reach out and find people. I always kind of cringe at that proposition because I've yeah, it's, seen it's it awful. happen, I've seen it work, and especially looking at some of what. Seder has done and you know disclosure it hasn't come up on the on the podcast before but i did a very small writing assignment for mage for the mage cookbook and so i oh cool yeah and so i've been involved with um with Seder a little bit and i'm on some of his collaborative groups and i've seen yeah. how much work he's put into it and he has put a lot of work into finding the right authors but it's it's worth doing and it can be done yeah it's you know the the idea when when you hear a white developer or a white editor, if it's not game related, saying that it's hard. What's real? What they're really saying is that their entire lives they've surrounded themselves with whiteness, and they they can't see past it. That's what they're actually saying because it's not that hard. I know so many indigenous writers. I know so many writers of color. I know so many gamers of color who want to write but like have never been in the right position to be able to do it. So, like, they're there, but that's because I don't surround myself with whiteness so I can see them. And the extra, all the extra work is, is just talking to people. Reach a little bit further than, you know, who you know. You know, don't necessarily look to, like, you know, your best friend and your wife to help you write your books. Like, reach beyond your circle. And there's people there that desperately want to be heard. And they have powerful things to say. And I think if you want to see at least since we're specifically talking right now about the Nyeki nations, if you want to see this, given the attention that you're noticing, even even with, you know, your own background isn't indigenous, 
but you still read this section, you're like, whoa, this is lacking and problematic. If you want to see that to be different, like we've got to get the developers to be willing to reach beyond their circle of, of whiteness. The thing about the game, the thing about the way that impacts the game, there's just, it's the right thing to do in terms of representing a broader array of people in media because <laughs> there's representation and then there's good representation. And the thing that I've really realized mostly in listening to non-white speculative fiction writers, this isn't just in gaming, bad representation isn't representation at all. Yeah. It's, it's really not. And one of the things about the Nunyahi that has always sort of grabbed me, when you go back to their first write-up, and there, there are a lot of problems and there's a lot of colonialism, there's all, there, there are also these glimmers where you can kind of tell they wanted to do better. You know, it doesn't have the kind of Orientalism problem that the Quajin have. They invoke multiple cultures. They don't lump everything together as the same in all of the ways. There are a couple ways they do. You know, there's, if that had been the same starting point and then it had improved, you know, with sort of like the path with the Ravnos until the Dark Ages Ravnos right oh, up. Oh, yeah. Like, I love the Dark Ages Ravnos because they're everything I used to love about early Ravnos before I knew any better, but reframed in a way that isn't awful. Yeah. <laughs> and I just feel like the Nunyahir are such a better starting point than the Ravnos were, but then they haven't taken those further steps in a lot of cases. The only person left alive on the island was a baby girl. The tired men, who had come there to pick up furs from the Anishinaabe people, stood uneasily on the rocky shore. The voyagers watched from a distance as the baby crawled in a circle, whimpering and pitiful. Her tiny dress of good blue wool was embroidered with white beads and ribbons, and her new moccasins were carefully sewn. It was clear that she had been loved. It was also clear that the family who had loved her was gone. All the fires in the village were cold. The dead lay sadly in blankets, curled as though sleeping. Smallpox had killed them all. The voyagers trembled at the thought that the disease might already have chosen one of them. Surely, they muttered, the baby had the sickness too. She's sick. She looks tired, said one man when she lay down against one of the blanketed figures. Let her sleep. Birds were singing, dozens of tiny white-throated sparrows. The trilling, rippling sweetness of their songs contrasted strangely with the silent horror below. First one, then the other of the men turned away. They got back into their canoes. As they paddled toward the next island, all were silent and thoughtful. Some wore hard expressions. One man had tears in his eyes. His name was Hat. He thought of his wife and decided he would tell her about the baby. If there was anyone in the world who'd go and rescue that little girl, it was his wife. He shivered a little as he thought of her. He couldn't help it. Tallow, she was called. And sometimes she scared him with her temper. Other times he was amazed at her courage. He grimaced in shame. Unlike him, his wife was afraid of nothing. There's something else about Changeling 
that in its core themes for the game, there's this running theme of a tension between tradition and the modern world. And, you know, with the Xi holding up feudalism and this whole division with the shadow court is sort of violently progressive, not progressive politically, but in change, almost violent change. And one of the things that always struck me about the Nunyahi is they're really deeply all traditional in their write-up. Yeah. With one exception, and that is the Thought Crafters. The Thought Crafters were not included in C20. I know from a Facebook comment that that was an unintentional oversight on the part of the developer. The book came out before someone pointed it out. Mm-hmm. And I have my fingers crossed that they'll show up in a, in a source book eventually, but they're all about innovation and invention. Yeah. Which, let me argue, indigenous youth today is uh all over that. I live in Bellingham, Washington, which is, you know, I I would say we are hosted by, other people obviously say it differently, but we are hosted by the Lummi Nation. And Lummi Nation has a, a college called Northwest Indian College. And I don't remember exactly, like, the details of this, but they... They had such an impressive effort going on in, I, I think, some kind of space technology stuff that JPL, like, gave them this big award and, like, it was in the news. You know, also, obviously, I think anyone who pays attention to what's going on in the modern Indian country, there's so much technology being developed about different kinds of, of safer energy Things like food forests and and stuff like that, healthier ways to feed ourselves without hurting the environment. Like a lot of environmentalist technologies are being developed out of indigenous communities. So that's that's a big deal of what's going on in the world today with indigenous communities. So one of the things that I've wanted to try to unravel is a good way to reframe the way the Nunyahi are written. The thought crafters strike me as the most obvious starting point because they're defined by invention, although they're still depicted in very pre-colonial aesthetic, which is uh, jarring for me, given the emphasis. But, you know, if you were to think about playing a, a Nunyahi character that's embodying sort of the knocker mold within the Nunyahi, the new, the invention, the technological but still glamorous... Where would you see that balance being in depicting one of these characters? So one of the interesting things about the Nanehi nations is you have three different kiths. I can't remember if there's a different word in this for them or not, but three different ones that are associated with water. The Meimei Guaishi, the water babies, and I actually can't remember the name of the third one, but you probably know it. I actually don't remember the name off the top of my head. But, I believe but there's three, the ones, there's three, there are three, yes. Um, there's three of them. And if you, I just was talking about um, environmental technologies and, you know, something we're dealing with today, like, you know, in Standing Rock, like the issue, there was lots of issues. There was a lot of important issues, but the primary, like, poster child issue that was going on at Standard Rock was the water and how that pipeline could potentially destroy the water and how water is a source of life. And so you could do lots of cool, like, interesting, like, dealing with themes like hydropower and even, like, fisheries and stuff like that. Because let me tell you, I don't know how much, like, so so the, the, the indigenous nations around here are heavily involved with, with the fishing industry. I don't know how much you know about the history of, like, the Bolt decision and the fishing wars and stuff like that. But I'm not a at, lot. 
basically the the various treaties that were signed in Washington state gave amongst many other rights to the to the to the nations who signed the treaties the right to fish in their usual accustomed places and that's basically how it's worded and obviously historically there since then there's been lots of fights with commercial fisheries and you know fish fishermen that are coming from settler communities about what indigenous communities have rights to and essentially there was a big war about it because they were trying to take the in the 70s i believe they're trying to take the rights away from indigenous fishers to fish in certain places they've always fished and there was a big political fight about it and it resulted in the bolt decision which meant which essentially said the bolt was named bolt was the name of the judge and he said that the communities that had signed these treaties got a they, they had the rights to 50 percent of the fish that come out of the water now that said since then because Settler society does not revere or treat water as sacred. Essentially, I don't know the exact numbers on this, but I'm going to say, you know, tribal nations probably spend something like five times as much, don't quote me on that, but I know it's a lot, five times as much money on preserving waterways and developing healthy places for fish to breed than the state does. So even though they are taking 50% of the catch from these waterways, they are investing both monetarily and scientifically far more than the state does. So like all three of those KISS is kind of what I'm saying is like could be involved in a modern way with that kind of technology because all of them are absolutely like, I think two of them die if they don't immerse themselves in like sacred water or something like that. If after a few uh, days. A water at least. It's not, it's not necessarily sacred water, but they do have to immerse themselves in water. Yeah. yeah and I, I found the third group. They're the Yunwi Ama Yinehi. Which I'm okay. probably butchering that. Uh, um, don't worry, I would too. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it, it the fact that there are three water kith and two of them, the Yinwi Ama Yinihi and the Water Babies, are written up almost identically. Slightly different emphasis on slightly different things, but the same ingredients there, including kidnapping kids. <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking about that too because when you brought up about you know writing more contemporary things that these kids might be doing like you, you mentioned technology and, and the knockers and that's absolutely a cool direction to go. But I, I think about that a little bit beyond technology and there's a lot of issues in, in indigenous communities with the way that the government handles. This is a sensitive issue in case you have any listeners that want like a warning about that. You know, I might talk a little about child abuse, but I won't go into detail. CPS, the child protective services tends to target indigenous communities i think like something like 10 times more than white communities the only other group of people that they target almost as much as they do indigenous communities are black communities as far as taking kids away and it's not like your ethnicity or the color of your skin or your culture is what's going to cause the likelihood of child abuse happening it is true that poverty can affect that but that's a different thing but my point is both of these kiths are concerned with children in one way or another arguably protecting them and i could see like i could see playing a water baby i I would go and playing a water baby character who's like i'm gonna go to cps and i understand i understand that working there being part of cps is going to be you know a rocket trip towards banality town and i'm gonna have a short life but i'm gonna save some kids while i'm there and that's gonna be my story well, and I think there's a really fascinating story there, especially with the new rules around banality and glamour, 
you know, one of the other things Simon and I talked about in our second banality and glamour episode, we did one before C20 came out and then we did one once C20 been out for a while of like, okay, but what changed? And one of the things we noted is the three seemings, the ages of changelings, yeah. although they're not strictly tied to age anymore. They made it more about mentality as opposed to how mm-hmm. old you were. They come with unique banality triggers and banality immunities. They wrote them up for the Cathane. They wrote them up for the Thalane. They did not write up different versions of them for the Nunyahi or the Menahune. Yeah. And the, the Grump, the more... I'll say more banal, more adult changeling. Uh, more adult is probably more in line with the C20 framing of it. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily more banal anymore, although they're more likely to be. Their banality immunity is they are immune to environmental banality. There are rules for if you're around a banal oh, person or a banal place, just being around it, you banality trigger. So but a grump, grump water baby could potentially work at CPS and survive longer potentially you know if if you don't write up unique versions of those for your nunyahi or menahune players yeah. there are especially in the wilder slice there's justification for it the grump translates a little better you know you still have to face the actual moments when people say things that trigger your unique relationship mm-hmm. but you can expend a glamour at the point that you earn it to get rid of a temporary banality so I think there's this a really fascinating story to be told there about, yeah, I've been working in CPS for the last 20 years. I don't do magic so much because my glamour is put into keeping me what I am so I can see this for what it is and keep doing good. I think you could tell a story with the current system where it isn't like it, it would be rough. It would be really rough. Yeah, but I mean, where they could find a way to survive. don't include supernatural stuff, that whole story is really rough. That is absolutely true. <laughs> this gets into something about the Nunyahi that, you know, Simon and I have talked about a lot. One of the core premises of the world of darkness is that nobody is a good guy. Not really. No one is a good guy. The the kith or parasites, yeah, sure, we're preserving dreams, but <laughs> we're also feeding off of you. You know, mage is all about nobody's really the good guy. Man, the dark side of the Nunyahi is kind of missing the way they're written. It's, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the Glamour Banality episode in that, you know, we talked earlier here about these are written by white authors. Yeah. And navigating... Stories like the one you just brought up become much more fraught when you really don't have any lived experience. But in the world of darkness specifically, that lack of the parasitic underbelly stands out because it doesn't fit with the rest of the world. Well, I think that's I think that's difficult. And part of there's there's different things going on there. I think part of it is um I mentioned before about, you know, the the white author's idea of, like, the pure medicine man kind of thing who who only uses their power for good and and, and loves all people, including white people. Um, you know, so, there, so part of it is, like, trying to write these good, perfect beings because that's a, that's a native trope. Another part is if, as a white author, you're trying to be conscientious, and I would argue that although they fail a lot, like in general, White Wolf authors try 
there's some bad things that have been written in this world, but in general, like, there's more of an effort. Like, like just from the very beginning, in the first product in Vampire the Masquerade, writing the, the gender narrative as a her in the gaming world at that time instead of a he was a huge step forward, even though there's still so many problems with what was written then, you know? But, like, they, they tried. And so if you're trying to be decent and honorable to a group of people who've put up with some historic white shit maybe you are like maybe i shouldn't write them as being bad people <laughs> and and i also understand where you're coming from though about the, the the theme of world of darkness how everything is a little bit dark again i'm going to go back and say that you could probably tackle those subjects a little bit more easily if the and i and i'm, I'm using a you know i don't mean you as an individual i i, I do mean the developers gaming community i guess because the gaming community's response to non-white authors is also important to whether or not we get hired if you get indigenous writers to write this group of of changelings you're gonna get writers who as you just mentioned like have lived the experience so know it a little bit better but also who are more capable of writing a little bit critically about what might be the darker side of some of these things um without the fear that said, I'm sure you know who Sherman Alexie is. Actually, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, name. okay. I, I apologize. Then no, no, that's um, fine. He, uh, I, I, that's uncommon for me because usually when uh, I talk with any anyone who you know, life is primarily in like white or settler culture. Like the one Native American writer they can be like, oh, I know this. Do you know this? Is Sherman Alexie, which is which why I assume, I assumed that. But anyway, he's a, he's a Native American writer and he's kind of lauded by settler society and some of some indigenous communities, but also is heavily critiqued in a way that white society, settler society doesn't because at least in my, when I read him, I read the stuff he writes and I'm like, man, you know, some of the things you say about Indian country is pretty harsh. And considering how everyone else talks about us, maybe you don't need to be saying some of these things also. So that still could be a problem, but I still think you're going to get, you know, again, get indigenous authors on this group and you're going to get something that's much more filled out, has a much better feeling. And I don't know, uh, you could all, <laughs> I'll throw out here, like, uh, a lot of the, the kits that are, are mentioned in here, you could play around with a bit of a trickster narrative and tricksters get pretty dark too, right? Like, so there's room for it there. It's there, but. I think largely why you're not seeing it is because you don't have indigenous writers writing this. That's that's broadly been my feeling. I try to find ways to make the Nunyihi a little bit more gray at my table, but I definitely only go so far with that for a lot of the reasons of, you know, if I do more than just skirt the edges of try to make them whole humans along with some flaws... I know that I'm going to get into territory where I'm I'm messing it up. Like there's just no way for me to have that perspective. And so that's, you know, needed triply so among the writers and developers. Although, you know, speaking to some of the the refaming and rewriting, there's something that Simon's been putting together and I wanted to kind of get your opinion of this way back when we first started this project, a little bit before we started this project. We talked about the fact that, okay, the Nunihi are tied to the land and the canon. But if you go back and look at the European myths, almost all of those Fae were 
tied to the land. You have the she-mounds, you have the Scandinavian elves that were Mm -hmm. of the earth. And so why isn't that part of their setting? And they're similar. Colonialism. (laughs) Colonialism. I mean, but also also with the Hisien and the fact that they sort of do their version of, of energy harvesting through worship, I've read stories about groups that informed the Nunyihi Kith where there was worship is a strong term, but an explicit honoring um, dynamic. And certainly the, the fair folk in various parts of Europe were worshipped. So again, why is that only in Asia? So he sort of scrapped the whole premise. He's been running Dark Ages Fae, which is a little more build your own Kith every time you make a character anyway. And he set it up where you can choose what your primary feeding dynamic is, what your you know form is, entirely custom, no matter what culture you're coming out of. And he translated the epiphanies from Changeling, but mm-hmm. it wasn't, oh, you're from North America, you get this one. It's, well, what's your story? What's your myth? Take the one that's appropriate. Interestingly, when he did that, suddenly he had players that wanted to play the Nunyahi, but they yeah. all took the of the land harvesting it was very like it surprised me when i heard that both of those things happened <laughs> it, it, it's like well again that's that i think that's just because you know how, were any of his players indigenous i do not believe so no okay it's because there's these just common ideas of who indigenous people are and also like you know truthfully uh part of the a way of indigenous life is is treating land as if it are, as if it were sacred, which is something I think is missing from settler society by and large. Um, that's true, but also like I think it just gets painted to be much further along that line. It gets painted to be like again, like in Pocahontas, like you talk with the trees and the animals and stuff like that, which is you know that's that's a joke. Yeah, I've, Pocahontas. I mean. That movie. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. don't need to go into that. We every... <laughs> wrong podcast, <laughs> probably. Um, but I was, I was curious about your idea of that reframing. You know, not to erase the animism, but not make it prescriptive. To insert some of the animism uh, back into I, the other myths. I think that it's a great idea. You know, you know what this makes me think of. Um, so I, I'm going to talk about something that's a little bit not gaming related, but I think it's related to this idea. Oftentimes, when critiquing whiteness and settler society, I'll get a response. And I, and I honestly, I have to critique it to live. Like, I don't think people understand that sometimes. Like, I will fall apart if I'm not like, here's why I don't fit into this mold. That often the response I get from people who live in and are socialized in white society and settler society is that I am being uh, unfairly critical of their heritage. And they might be like, my heritage is Polish, or my heritage is Scottish, and my heritage is, you know, French. And I'm like, no, I'm not being critical of your heritage. I'm being critical of of whiteness, because whiteness and your heritage are are not synonymous. Whiteness is the kind of culture that you are now part of, this culture of power based on skin color, ultimately, that most people who are involved in it do have that skin color. And most people do come from countries that are like the countries your heritage is coming from. But I promise you, your heritage is not in any way whatsoever whiteness. And that kind of comes into play with what you're talking about, about, hey, like, you know, let's, let's go back to the more animistic sources, like, like the mounds for the she. That's part of the actual history and heritage of that culture. But 
it definitely is you have to look past globalization you have to look past capitalism you have to look past colonialism and all of these foundational pillars of whiteness and settler society to get back to those roots so yeah i think that's a great idea and i think there's a lot of power in reclaiming your heritage and holding on to it i try to tell all of my white friends that like there's there's lots of white people who like look at indigenous culture and like man i wish i had that i'm like you can have it it's there in fact your stuff is preserved in many ways much better in libraries and stuff than, than ours is because they tried to destroy ours uh, you can go get that back and in this game sense that you're describing i'm a hundred percent behind trying to be like hey you know if you're talking about traditions here and if you're talking about heritage and and none none of the european fae are coming from quote-unquote white culture they're all coming from a very specific culture like you know i mentioned before red caps being scottish like all of them are very specific and if you want to go back and claim what what your heritage and culture is, even in a game sense, like that is the right path to take in every way. Yeah, I. That's a lot of what I thought about when Simon first sort of pitched that. I, for our listeners, hopefully, fingers crossed, his write up on those rules will be up by the time this airs. He's expanding them a little bit, but. I always liked that idea. I also kind of wanted to play around with the idea of, you know, Changeling is very much centered in America and is very much centered in white America. It nods to Europe every now and then. You know, there's one of the Immortalized books that sort of centers heavily on Europe but isn't really heavily canon because it's First Ed. There wasn't a ton of canon in First Ed. And then later on, you know, Warren Concordia similarly nods to Europe, but it, what Europe looks like is never really developed. Yeah. And one idea that Simon and I have toyed around with is that the Cathane in America are a colonial dream. And the mm-hmm. Cathane in Europe don't look like that. I mean, there's a similar lineage. They're, they're going to be the same kith, but it is different. And I kind of love the idea of taking a group of American Cathane back to Europe at some point and finding, oh, oh, these are my relatives. And they gather their glamour from the earth because this is the earth they're from. Mm-hmm. And that being more about being a, a fae out of your place where your dream was born and not being able to take from the earth because it's not your earth. And totally flipping that whole narrative about oh we had to learn to take power from the earth because we were cut off actually you were not the ones who were cut off i i really love the idea of subverting that and i think the background of the myths really supports it i think that sounds like a a very cool narrative i would play that game (laughs) (laughs) that would that would be a fun game To the great white father and all his people, we, the Native Americans, reclaim the land known as Alcatraz Island in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. We wish to be fair and honorable in our dealings with the Caucasian inhabitants of this land, and hereby offer the following treaty. We will purchase said Alcatraz Island for $24 in glass beads and red cloth precedent set by the white man's purchase of a similar island about 300 years ago. We know that $24 in trade goods for these 16 acres is more than was paid when Manhattan Island was sold. 
but land values have risen over the years. Our offer of a dollar and twenty-four cents per acre is greater than the forty-seven cents per acre the white men are now paying the California Indians for their land. We will give the inhabitants of this land a portion of that land for their own, to be held in trust by the American Indian government for as long as the sun shall rise and the rivers go down to the sea, to be administered by the Bureau of Caucasian Affairs. We will further guide the inhabitants in the proper way of living. We will offer them our religion, our education, our life ways, in order to help them achieve our level of civilization, and thus raise them and all their white brothers up from their savage and unhappy state. We offer this treaty in good faith and wish to be fair and honorable in our dealings with the white men. We you know we, we didn't talk about that we kind of hinted that we might talk about earlier is the fact that White Wolf at large, but also specifically in the Changeling write-up of the Nanyahi nations, is that they pretty much ignore the fact that anything south of the colonial U.S. border exists. Um, yes, that is very true. And I've, you know, when writing for Seder, I brought this up in the broader white wolf sense, which is, for some reason, I don't understand. I think it's racism, but I, I'm trying to get the benefit of a doubt. Um, white wolf really, like, in their theme, really likes to write Mexico as the center of all evil in the world. And I'm like, no, you know, like, there's so much cool sacred stuff going on in Mexico. And I think the perception of the darkness that comes out of Mexico is, like, because of what Spaniards did to Mexico, not because of indigenous Mexicans. Like, so I just wanted to mention that since we hinted about it earlier, we actually didn't talk about it. But, like, yeah, they one of my tribes is Mexican, so I am touchy about how Mexican Indians are treated. Yeah, and there's something written somewhere about the fact that any changeling that goes I, – I don't think it's Mexico. It's definitely South America. If they mm -hmm. go as far as South America, they never return, <laughs> and no one knows why. And, and, that's, and, and you know, even though they don't detail it, I, I'm sure that's whole, part of the whole world darkness, like everything south of Texas is evil. Um, yeah. Well, and I had a really interesting exchange. Someone – it was on the general Old World of Darkness group on Facebook. Someone put up a post saying, hey, I want to do a story in, I think it was Venezuela. Uh -huh. um, it might have been a part of Brazil, but I'm thinking it was Venezuela, uh, but my memory might be a little off. You know, what would be populist there? And it was a broad you know, question. And I jumped in and I said, well, you know, I don't know a ton about the local myths, but there would definitely be an anime who are mm -hmm, elemental mm -hmm. fae, and they, mm -hmm. in the canon, they exist everywhere. And someone jumped in and said, oh, well, you know, probably not really. There might be some gladelings, but there wouldn't be any crafted mannequins. And I was like, what? And I pulled up the references for all of the big cities in the region he wanted to run his game, and I went, yes, things are crafted there. Like, <laughs> there are cities there. Yeah. Yeah, they, things no. have been made there. Here are some local indigenous representations of dolls from those cultures. You'd have mannequins. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it, it, that's just like I think that's just like the the American view of everything south of the border being like either deserts, jungles, or drug cartels. So like, <laughs> there's there's <laughs> no one has working toilets south of Texas. You know, like that kind of whole idea. Yeah, it's uh, it it it's so dissonant to think about 
Mexico that way for me. I mean, I work in research administration, and right now I'm working with a university in Mexico to deploy a big research administration enterprise system for the huge network of universities, and I'm learning about the differences in regulations between Mexican research grants and American research yeah. grants, and I'm just like deep in that world, Yeah, and that's my lens, and so every once in a while I get dragged back out of that lens, and it's very strange. Yeah. Most people, I think, have the same view that our current president does. So unless you have a relationship <laughs> with Mexico, so it's not, you know, uh, this the American society does not treat Mexico very well, and and any let alone anything south of Mexico. That is unfortunately true. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. I've really enjoyed getting your perspective on the Nunyahi and. It's been really good. This is an episode we've wanted to do for a while, but we, Simon and I did not want to dive into this one on our own because we would not have all the right perspectives. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, it was fun, and I hope it was informative for your listeners and that people take seriously what I said about trying to influence the developers to get more writers of color working on their stuff. They want to see stuff being written better from that perspective. I certainly hope that happens, and I think in general... A lot of people, from what I've heard in the community, would like to see that happen with Changeling. So yeah. to all the listeners, thank you for joining us. And I hope that we've given you a couple ideas you can use, some perspective on the Nunihi. And I hope that you will join us for our next conversation. Adios. from this conversation were from A Sacred Place by J.F. High, The Birchbark House by Louise Erdrich, and The Alcatraz Proclamation by Indians of All Tribes. The music from this episode was LSD by Montplaisir.